Hello and welcome to All Change Please, our podcast about leaving a big city behind and starting afresh somewhere new. We are Jane and Jean Ann, journalists and friends who enjoyed our own love affairs with London before settling down with less racy, more reliable locations. Jane to Bexley in Kent and Jean Ann to her hometown of Derry. Each episode, we speak to fellow city quitters about why they left, how they took the leap, and what their new life's been like. Now, this is our last show of the series, so before we introduce this week's brilliant guest, we just want to say thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen over the last few months. Yeah, creating this podcast got us through lockdown. Well, lockdown (laughs) part one, and we've loved it. We hope you've enjoyed it too and picked up some useful tips for your own adventures. And thank you to all our guests for taking part. We've had life or death moves, escaping to the country moves, work burnout moves. We'll keep all their episodes up there in case you'd like a listen. Now, Jane, I don't like to pick favourites, but this week's episode is the one I've been looking forward to the most. Me too. (laughs) Cast your mind back to 1994. Liz Hurley was wearing dresses made of safety pins. I had invested my first communion money in a purple shell suit. And a young man from Derry was at number one in the charts with Things Can Only Get Better. Now, I'll never forget Dee Ream and Peter Kuna bouncing around on top of the pops in his tartan suit. But Jane, things did get better for you because you actually got to see them live. I did. Not once but twice I saw them support take that and then they came down to little old Devon where I lived which was huge excitement and I got to see D-Ream on their own show in all their glory and yeah I just remember a lot of active bouncing from the cunner which was great um, and they had eight top 40 hits in total uh, things could only get better was of course used by Labour as the anthem for the 1997 general election more on that later the lineup also included the now Professor Brian Cox on keyboard and Al McKenzie. Dee Ream sadly went their separate ways, but they've been working on new music on and off, and they now have a new single, Meet Me at Midnight, and an upcoming LP called Hope For You. And after decades living in London, Peter recently moved back to the northwest of Ireland to Donegal, so we had to get him on to talk about that, as well as indulging us in a bit of a 90s nostalgia buzz. I should point out that the interview was recorded remotely prior to the current round of lockdown restrictions, and you may hear Peter's bandmate Al pottering around in the background because they were in the process of recording some new tracks. We spoke to Peter in his new home in Fawn in County Donegal. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so delighted to have you on. Oh, my computer. And <laughs> <laughs> a piece of equipment just fell off it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a metaphor for my life. <laughs> Once you hit 50, things start breaking down, you know. Don't tell me that. I've got three years before I get to 50. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're a mere puppy. <laughs> things can only get worse. Is that the- oh, yeah, well, they only get worse before they get better. We know this. <laughs> That's how we fool ourselves. Peter, how often do you get get people coming at you with dad jokes like that? I, I have um I've got a thing called the swear box and um uh, um I, I I make people put a pound in it every time they say to me, you know what they say, Pete? Things can only get better. And I'm like, oh god, that's a pound in the swear box. Now, interestingly, <laughs> I was only two weeks into my new house in Donegal when I opened up a Euro swear box, and I had 20 euro from builders, moving agents. Uh, I mean, everyone, they were all at it. So uh, <laughs> not the only one then. Box, you know? <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll PayPal you a few quid now after we chat. Oh, <laughs> it's how us artists make our money these days because we have to retrain, right? Yeah. I know. Oh, God. Yes. 
<laughs> have you thought about that, Peter? What are you, what are you going to retrain as? <laughs> well, it's, that's interesting because um, I've seen a lot of people on, on Twitter and everything like really moaning about um, not feeling valued. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of want to give them a slap because when, when, when the proverbial hit the fan for me, I went and, and I, I lectured for a bit. I went and I, I, I learned how to, I did DIY around the house. I, I, I did some uh, developer stuff and I sold houses. And, and I just thought to myself, when, when, when the proverbial hits the fan, you got to, you do have to do something. People, the, the first reaction, the knee-jerk reaction is, I, I'm wonderful, I'm brilliant. Look at me, I'm amazing, I'm an artist. You know, how dare you? And the reality is, you know, if there aren't any audiences around and there's no venues around and you're looking at down the long end of a barrel of a gun, then, you know, you have to stop whinging and get on with it. That's my take on it. Now, I know that doesn't chime with with everyone who's trying to protect this so-called precious artistry, but don't forget artistry up until, you know, 50, maybe more years ago, wasn't a paid career. Uh, it was just, it was, a, not frivolous, but it was, it was entertainment. Everyone in Ireland, you know, uh, had a party piece and they would get up and entertain each other. This is even before the time of radio. I know my family, my mum, my dad, everyone knew a couple of lines from a song. Someone knew the second verse. So we, we come from that tradition of um, sort of self-entertainment. And, and yes, we have exploded, but it's like it's like a footballer. You know, I mean, ultimately, that's not going to put bread on the table. Right. You know, it's, it's a game. Ultimately, what we do is entertainment. And, and my take on it is, you know, if you are looking down the long end of barrel of a gun, then you, you have to do something else. You know, if, at one point, <laughs> you love it. I thought if this is the apocalypse, right, where I am now, uh, we've got running water next door by way of a stream. I know I can hunt rabbits and I can fish right out there because it's just a, and so your head goes to these places and you think, well, I know some local farmers. I'll be able to go and see if I can get a hen or, a, you know, so you're back to the real basics here. Do you know what I mean? The last thing I'm thinking of is another dream album. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, it's very resourceful, Peter. And Come on. You've got to be resourceful. Because, <laughs> Peter, you, um, you lived in Belfast as an art student. Of course, you're a dairyman originally That's right. um, from Clarendon Street. Is that right? I was, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm actually... I grew up in, first of all, I grew up in the Bogside in uh, Dove Gardens, and we moved out of there uh, just as the troubles kicked off. Um, I think I moved when I was about four, moved to um, Carn Hill um, near Chantallo, and I mm-hmm. uh, was there for about, until I was 11, and then moved into Clarendon Street in Derry uh, when I was about 12, that would have been in the um, uh, early early 80s, uh, and um, <clears throat> lived there for a few years before I went to Belfast uh, when I was... Uh, 19. I followed my band um, who had all gone to Queen's and I went to the University of Ulster at Belfast, the York Street campus. And it was lovely. It was all nice new machines and all the rest of it. And I got to do a foundation year there where um, I was trying out all sorts of things, experimenting with. Basically, I used a printer to do um, uh, cassette covers for the band <laughs> and posters and all the rest of it, you know. Um, so yeah, no, that was a great time. Really, really enjoyed myself. We used to hang out at the limelight, go to Lavery's and Speranza's. These, these were great places back in the day. Um, very, very enjoyable time in my life. And I had a great teenage life and then moved to London, I think, when I was um, about 19, 20. Yeah, when was that? 70, 86, 86, 86, yeah, 1986. Moved what was that like, Peter, as a, as a dairyman? It must have been kind of sensory overload going to somewhere like London, because at that Absolutely. time, well, dairy was still very much in the troubles. London's a hard place when you're nobody and you've got no money. It's really hard. So you feel for these people who are incomers and they're just trying to make ends meet. But the fact is that there is uh, work there. There's no, there wasn't any work for the musicians. We spent seven years on the, the touring circuit in Ireland trying to 
do anything and try to cause as much of a fuss as we could but it's it's like a very uh it was a very small scene and very hard to break out of i mean the undertones got lucky in so far as that uh terry hooley uh, got their record played uh, on uh, john peel and that that was great because that made a direct connection to england and the whole thing lit up for them we did things like janice long sessions and maybe we didn't have a good enough record but we, we didn't make enough of a a, a, a sway in, in the record industry and that's why I ended up in, on my friend's floors once my band split up in 19 what was that 89 yeah and she's not with us now but I stayed in Manor House up in um in northeast London up towards Tottenham and that was a harsh area because I was I, I have a friend of mine uh, Raina Shine uh she's a great engineer and she, she put me up on her floor for a couple of years helped me get myself together and learn how to program and produce and then I moved to Labrick Grove uh, down near Portobello. I spent about four or five years there. And the thing is, Lab Grove is, is so, then in the 90s, it was really creative space with lots of like all sorts of things like organics were there. I'd never heard that word before. People recycling stuff. Um, <clears throat> the markets were amazing. I could go on a Friday afternoon and pick up three or four avocados for a pound. And, you know, as a vegetarian, I could live on that for, you know, a week. <laughs> I don't like them so much now. <laughs> It was a really exciting place at, at that time, and I met lots and lots of musicians and artists and poets and DJs and all the rest of it. And that, that was the sort of catalyst to, to performing The Ring with Alan. And um, I went from being in a band that was putting a CD on, on people's you know, desk, asking them for an opinion, to being in a band where we made a record and it just sold. And we bypassed the industry and everyone was going, what the hell's going on here? It was like the train was moving and they needed to get on it. So. Mm. Yeah. So that was that. And, I, and, you know, I stayed in London for 30 years. I, I got married there. I had children. I had, you know, a house, a family, all that sort of thing. And then, uh, yeah, I got divorced uh, 10 years ago. Met my new wife five years ago in India, of all places. Oh, wow. In Goa. Oh, I love Goa. I got engaged in Goa. It's a oh, magical place. place. I, mean, I know. <laughs> oh, I mean, I was even thinking, you know, you know, the best Marigold Hotel. It does sort of, it goes in there, doesn't it? <laughs> So, um, no, no, yeah, wonderful place and great people. And, you know, obviously the pace of life and the colours there, the way the sunlight makes it, it's just gorgeous. You understand why the Beatles came up with psychedelia when you actually get there, because it's just, yeah, you know, it's explosion of colour. We had a really weird experience in Goa. We actually got, um, we made friends with the local mayor. I don't know how. Mm. And he invited us along to a local music festival. And it was like nothing I've ever seen before. It was like mini Glastonbury, but you could also play hook a duck. <laughs> it was like a village fate meets like Glastonbury. And the music was just, it's every type of music you've ever heard, all being played yeah. by these local kids. It That's was true. like the most surreal experience I've ever had, but it was brilliant. Oh, nice. They do include you, you know, they try and make, make reach out. Yeah, and that's what do. I love about them. Yeah. 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 Really yeah. Anyway, I went, so after going, we got married five years, four years back. And, um, and I was coming up for 30 years in London. And my kids are old enough now to hop on a plane. They're being uh, 16 and 18. I thought, you know what, I've been keeping my eye on, I grew up around um, Bunkrana and I learned to swim on Bunkrana Beach, you know, I, it was the summer of 76, I was 10 years old and I remember leaning forward in the salt water and, and I sort of like, you know, taking my first mouthful of salt water trying to <laughs> learn how to swim on my own. The water was warm, uh, that year was particularly hot. Um, and then, <clears throat> yeah, I, I sort of learned to swim down there and um, incidentally later on when I got into the swimming pool and I went to swim I didn't realize the difference between fresh water and salt water and 
I sank like a stone in the fresh water. So I just wasn't prepared for it. But, um, you know, so I, I've had so much history. We had a caravan down here at, in Bunkrana um, most of my young life. And all those summers were spent down here, just wandering around the hills, trying to chase rabbits and um, and go swimming and, and, and walking up into Bunkrana, which which then was like a little mini Las Vegas. It was just full of slot machines. And, and as kids, before all these new controls came in, controls, one of my least favorite words, um, they, we, we could give 10p or 50p and we'd go out and see if we could play our fortunes on these slot, one arm bandits, we call them. I mean, they're still there, but it's all now like cigarette packets. It's all uh, covered up. And uh, But I had great memories of that. And we used to make our way down there. And we were talking about six or seven years old. We just walked in, gone to the slot machines, came home, bought some chips between us and walked home and, you know, with the stars and the sky. And like, it was just a great childhood. A lot of um, independence. And uh, yeah, I learned to swim down there. So I've been keeping my eye on this spot for forever. And uh, when the time came to move, we were going to actually buy a, a plot and build a house, but then this, this house came up. And it's, um, it's great because I'm looking out over um, Boxwell at the minute. I can see Inch just across the way there from me. And I've got to say, in terms of the move, this is my, this is my forever home. I, I'm back home where I want to be. Mm. I came home to look after my mom and dad. She, she passed there last, um, last November. But uh, the, the, the idea that I could be here and be around for them was, was just great. And my kids can come over and see me. But... I, I didn't plan on what this place has given me. Um, the people here, I mean, I feel connected again. I recharge my batteries and the air is clear. Uh, I've turned into a bit of a twitcher because uh, <laughs> we've got nesting house martins in the summer. I can see starlings. I, I know the difference between wow. geese and red geese. I mean, don't tell anyone I'm supposed to be a house musician, you know. But it's sort of... <laughs> no, it's just wonderful. I absolutely love it. I can't, I can't um, you know, and, and the thing is, all my English friends are all coming over now going, wow, you know, like you, you lucked out here. We're, we've sitting in lockdown and we come over here and all of a sudden, you know, they can, we can go and exercise there even in the worst lockdown. And for me, it's, it's been a, a revelation. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it's so um, it's such a beautiful part of the world. I'm just in love with that part of the world as well. It's it's, yeah. it's gorgeous. And I wondered, you mentioned there like swimming as a child. Have you kind of reconnected with your youth in some ways and Peter, that childlike yeah. Um, joy in the simple things yeah definitely I mean we go out for walks or we'll go um running definitely lots of walks down to Swan Park and I, I do walk around some of these areas and I think I remember being very young coming here um even went up to Port New and Port Rush and places like this and I was going around this has all changed but I remember this bit from when I was you know five or six and it brings back memories you know walking around with my grand and my, they're all gone now but yeah, no, it's a magic, I think it's a magic place. I think it's yet, it's yet undiscovered and long may it be so. <laughs> Spent a lot of the summer um, swimming in Bunkrana Beach and um, yeah. particularly after lockdown, it was just a sense of freedom again to be able to do that. And the water, the water's pretty cool. Are you a five mil or a, a one centimetre wetsuit? <laughs> I, I think wetsuits are cheating, Peter. I wouldn't wear one. Are you, you're going to go for it, are you? Um, yeah, yeah, no wetsuits for me. No, no I, I agree. I grew up yeah. by the sea. You can't have a yeah. wetsuit. You just got to go in. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's just that it, it doesn't do wonders for a gentleman's part. So I must say it's that cold. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, this is a podcast. <laughs> And I'm not rising to that challenge, I'm afraid. No. Oh, that's hilarious. That's Alan, by the way. Hello. Hello. Hi. That's my partner, Alan. Hi. Say hello. Say hello. Do my hair. No, no. It's okay. We're a podcast. It's fine. Hi. Hi. We're working on the new album. Oh, exciting. Alan, do you need any backing singers? 
needs all the backing he can get. <laughs> we're gonna um we're gonna get onto the album as well soon, Peter, because it, it sounds great. But we um I want to bring you back to the kind of the good times in London, if you like, and the you know the, the I don't know if they were well, yeah, good times, but the height of your them. fame there. Yeah, yeah, you um you know I remember as you know a child in Derry watching you on top of the pops in your tartan suit, and you know that <laughs> just that was. It was incredible to see, you know, we were still kind of in the troubles at that point and it was really uplifting to have somebody making such a success of it because Harry was usually on the news for all the wrong reasons, you know. I know, I know. And what Derry gave me, um, you know, I never wanted to get up and entertain people by strumming my pain and uh, hitting them over the head, telling them they're going to hell in a handcart, right? That's not, that's not what music's ever been to me. Um, It's entertainment. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people do very well out of, the other side but um when i got involved in early house music i just that optimism and hopefulness i, I just wanted to encapsulate that and i wanted to make people happy and i wanted to make them dance and um just like we did when we were growing up you know it was just about um, it was just the fun the, the element of fun and hope mm, and that's yeah. what uh, Jareen was it was a catalyst for me to do that you know when al and i met up we were just just about to get on the, the crest of a wave of, of the early house music scene and, and we rode that and it's funny because I, I could program and make records, but I could also write, and that's that's a rarity in most of those scenes. Um, so I was I was in a position of like you know being able to use Dream as a catalyst for my songwriting, but also um, I suppose ultimately you know you hit top of the pops, you think you know I've arrived, but actually <laughs> that's just the start of the greasy pole, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and um, it was it was a great catalyst because in terms of my own development, what I went through being in that band. I went through the mangle in the end because it's, it's very hard to navigate a uh, very, very highly politicized um, environment as someone as sensitive as an artist. But you know, I've, I've grown up a lot going through that process quite a lot. And um, yeah, it's made me the man I am today. And I'm glad to say that it was a, a good experience overall in the yeah. end. Yeah. I, I've seen you perform live a couple of times. I saw you support Take That back in the day. Uh-huh. And then you came down to my area of the country you did a gig at Exeter University uh-huh. and um, I just remember them being so joyous your gigs yes. they were full of energy yeah. and you bouncing around on the stage in your tartan it was so much fun and you know we're hoping to get back to a bit of that at some point but mm. the thing is Alan and I fell out for a while because we just went our separate ways creatively I bumped into him in, in the park at the back of my house by accident in 20, 2008 <laughs> That's fate, isn't it? Serendipity. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm out. I've got my kids and one on the push chair and, and um, one walking beside me with her little um, trolley. I go to the playground and there's a bunch of kids sitting with this old chap with a beard and glasses on and they're, <laughs> they're smoking wacky backy and it's the kids' playground. So I got to challenge them and up stands my ex-partner going, and I went, wow, uh, what are you doing here? He said, well, you, well, I live over there. He said, what are you doing here? He says, I'm, I'm with hanging out with these kids. We're on our way to a baby shambles gig. I was going, well, Baby you know, shambles, that's a blast yeah, in the yeah. past. <laughs> so 2008. <laughs> yeah, it's very, so uh, I said, he said, well, you shouldn't have done that second album without me, it was shit. And I went, for the benefit of hindsight, I think you're right. He said, well, let's do another <laughs> record. <laughs> as simple as that. And I said, well, you know, you won't mind if my kids come in and play, but I don't want that stuff anywhere near them. <laughs> so they put it out and they were like, oh, yes, Mr. Cutter. <laughs> Because you, know, you, you, nice, you, nice you, know? you said Pete, that, you know, 2% of the world's population live in London. But what's great about it is you get encounters like that in such a huge um, city. I had some great stuff happen. I mean, I had one, one guy come up to me many years later. He said, um, 
Jesus, you won't remember me, but um, I really have to thank you because uh, I'd come off my motorbike one time and I was out in Heathrow, it was black, there was no street lights and, um, and I was in a bad way and you made the turcoach pull over and you, you, I think you rescheduled your flights, but you waited with me till the ambulance arrived because you saw me out. I was going, did I? <laughs> yes, you did. I was, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, seriously. No, I remember you. <laughs> I was going, cool. <laughs> yeah, you get all sorts of things. And then people come up to you and say, um, oh, you know, my brother got buried and that's the song we played at his funeral. I'm going, wow, go figure. Um, and then someone says, oh, you know, that, um, we, that was our song when we were out dancing and we get married and we play. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. It's just an unintended consequence. I mean, yeah, London, what a place, man. <laughs> and did you, um, did you get back to Derry much um, during that kind of oh, yeah. height of the success? And oh, what was yes, the reaction I, like then? I, I tried to get back as much as possible. Back then, my feet didn't touch the ground much. I, I remember being in Australia when my mum was taken in for a heart operation. And they said, you can't come home. You've got to finish the tour. Then you're straight back to blah, blah, blah. And I, I, that started, as I said, I have a problem with uh, authority. And uh, I really struggled with that one. Uh, outside of that, I, I came back four times a year, pretty much as regularly as I could. And I've, I've watched Derry, you know, grow over that time since '97. I've watched the sea change that's happened, and I've welcomed it. I mean, because it's—I know it's not um, in everyone's mind now, uh, especially among the younger, younger generation. But uh, yeah, back then there was a, a there was a that that old feeling of uh, threat that's really kind of felt lifted. And I can't even see the new IRA or, or UBF or whoever it is being supported by a society which is, has kind of moved on from that. There's no, there's no going back. Not, not even with the, the Brexit thing. I can't, I can't see people, um, I can't see it going back to the old ways at all. Yeah. And um, no, it's, it's a completely different place now. I, I lived in London and Dublin for, you know, well over a decade and moved back last year. And it's just such a, obviously now things are, are, are strange during COVID, but it, it's, it's a different place. It's full of hope and, possibility for that generation now that wasn't there when, when we were young but you you kind of were a, an example of someone who had gone and made a success of it and the fact that you've come back here is is lovely yeah you know? I've made no um secret of my love for the place and uh, I've always talked uh, really fondly about it when I've been away um I, you have to balance that carefully with telling people too much because they all might come here and then it gets <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. Fawn, Fawn is a is a real dive of a place. There's nothing nice about your window in oh, yeah. Fawn. Look, look away. This isn't for you. Peter, of course, you know, sort of famously now, Labour kind of jumped on your bandwagon and, and used your your song for their election campaign in '97. Yeah. How how bizarre was that for you? It was very bizarre. I've, I've been talking to some friends recently about um, how to get decent politicians, and I I think that they all should be made to dance. So if, if they've got a sense of rhythm, they can probably get the job uh, because none of this lot could even clap in time for toffee. I tell you, they were just <laughs> all over the gaff. Okay. Because they can't dance. If they no sense of timing, yeah, therefore. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that's, that's it. You know, that's maybe that we could make that a prerequisite of all elections from now on. But Who was the worst offender, Peter? Was it was it Prescott? Was it Blair? No, it was the um they had all of these uh, people who were their um foot soldiers you know they did the um the door to door stuff they were always at the front and that was the weirdest <laughs> audience I've ever uh, performed to <laughs> oh my god yeah I mean anyway yeah um, um look I got a word through from um our office and they said look um they're gonna use it for the um the election campaign and I was going well, what's going on and they, they brought us in I met um John Prescott took me through the House of Parliament and 
So, um, and, and he was one, I admired him because when that guy hit him with that egg, my God, his response was just brilliant. Absolutely. Deck, you remember he decked him? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, they took us around and they said, we're going to use this thing. I was going, okay. And I was sort of um and eyeing and thinking, do I really want to get involved in this? And then I thought, well, well you know, we'd had 18 years of Tory rule and um, we, that sea change was was kind of in the air and we all wanted change. Mm-hmm. I could see what's coming on. So I didn't want to get in the way of it. I thought, well, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll lend my support. And then it all turned out, you know, brilliantly. I mean, they got elected. Within a week, he'd come back. And I, I know that he built on the work that John Major had done. But, you know, the 97 Good Friday Agreement was, I think, one of the, 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 the stars in the crown, as it were, of, mm-hmm. of Blair's government. But then he completely ruined it by taking us to, to war in Iraq. And I was I was on the front cover of the mirror going, not in my name. I've even written a song about it called Drop Beats and Not Bombs. I can't, I can't get my head around it. And it's still to this day, it seems like we were taken to, to war on a lie. But don't forget that going to war on a lie or locking down in COVID on a lie is something which governments do very, very well. And, and we take it. We believe it. A lot of people believe it. In hindsight, it wasn't a good thing to do. No one would cover that song. But the other thing is, just at the last lockdown, you know, when they were, a lot of people were um, finishing the NHS clap. Yeah. Sunrise Spark started playing things going to get better. It, I think it was in Sheffield. It was in Nottingham. Uh, and then someone did it in Belfast. And it was like, I was getting these, um, what do you call it? You know, Instagram things coming through. And I was going, wow, wow. And it was really touching because obviously it's a great way to finish any night. But um, it's the use of your song that people make, which... It's way beyond your intentions, um, but also it's lovely to see it having a life outside of labour now and doing its own thing again. Do you get frustrated though? Because obviously you're working on new material. Is it frustrating when people just hark back to your, you know, your big hits? Yeah, my, my phrase is there are other songs available. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, you know, look, it, what we do when we do it, um, we put out an album in 2010. We got loads more gigs offers. That's how it works, and um, we just we just like doing what we do, and we're bloody good at it. Uh, no, it's 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 good. It's it's what we do, and we like doing it, and we're lucky enough to make a living at it at least this far. Um, if things continue, though, I don't know. I mean, musicians are going to have to go online and broadcast from home, like you know we're doing now. But um, I really have a problem with the idea of just singing to a camera in an empty room. Mm. It's, yeah, it's not the same atmosphere at all. Derry, we were in bands. I was in Tie the Boy. There was Bam Bam Calling, the, the, the Call, all sorts of great bands back in our little scene. And we just cut our teeth like um, on the sticky carpet in, in um, oh my God, what's a place called? In, 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 in Waterloo Street. Godour. Godour. Oh my. <laughs> that's a, that's I mean, a rite of passage in Derry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, when you could, um, your feet used to stick to the carpet. We, um, we managed to, you know, pull together these gigs, and we cut our teeth just playing live. You know, see, seeing all these great, great artists sort of developing, like, like, like um, Jerry Coyle and um, Jim Walker, and all these great, great performers that we really were, you know, just enthralled with, and um, they were an inspiration. But also, you just learned, you know, how to print the tickets, how to put the posters up to get the word of mouth going we didn't have the internet and um you really learn from the ground up and and live is you know ultimately where i took my band we were one of the first house bands to, to, to have a full live lineup you know there's us and them people and that that to me is like the pinnacle of, of um you know making music you get to go out and celebrate it with with an audience so how it plays out in this world you know people are a small attention span now i, I noticed that even my girls, if I'm talking to them, they drift off <laughs> and they're on the phones and everyone's like, even at gigs. I, the other time I did a gig at the university, not too long, I probably showed my age, but 
all these kids started turning around and taking selfies with the thing in the background. I was going to have their backs to us. And I was like, I'm not used to that. I'm just not yeah. used to that at all. My biggest irritation at gigs is when people get out and film the bloody thing rather than just enjoying it in, the moment, yeah. in that moment. Yeah, I really hate it. Peter, I just wondered whose idea was the tartan suits um, <laughs> and do you still have them? I don't still have them. I couldn't get into them if I tried. Um, <laughs> and um, it was, um, I had a stylist at the time who, um, uh, fantastic, we did several photo shoots that, that year and he used to show up with all sorts of great clubber. Um, there's people like Dexter Wong and oh, Paul Smith. Yes, yes. And he came up with a whole rack of stuff one time and, and in there was two check suits by Willie Hunt. So I never thought anything of them. I just put them on, we took, took the photos and they were dismissed in the initial kind of uh, the, the cho- choosing that was done and uh, nothing happened. And um, the album was re-released a year later and, and some bright spark at the label went, this one will do and put that on the cover. And the next thing you know, it's like, it's done this thing. But then Willie Hunt calls me up and he goes, um, I think I've sold 30 suits this week because, <laughs> because <laughs> your, your poster's everywhere. And so he takes me out for dinner and we become lifelong friends. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, All yeah. over a tartan suit. <laughs> oh, funny, funny though. Um, later on, I was doing a gig in Belfast. Um, it was probably in 1994, 95. And uh, I, I had some tartan suits sent over for me. And um, I'd been putting on a bit of weight because I've been drinking too much. And he sent me over one that was like a, an, a, about an inch too short in the, the waist and in the gusset. And, and the first night in Belfast, I jumped on stage and went, hello, Belfast, like this year. Got down on my, my, my knees like this at the front. And uh, the gossip just burst, right? So, and I stood up, and um, the, the headline on the Belfast Telegraph the next day was uh, D Ream Sing, D colon Ream Singer hits B colon rump, um note, but B um note. This <laughs> <laughs> is brilliant. It's bum note. Oh, your dancing was pretty enthusiastic. I'm not surprised you Yeah, but it, it wasn't choreographized. That's just how we, <laughs> when we were at the nightclubs, we just jumped around. Mm. You know, that's how you felt. It just, it, the music drove us, but. When you look at it, it just looks like it's not quite Mick Jagger, but it does look a bit unhinged, and that's that's fine. <laughs> so I suppose in all these adventures of everywhere you've lived, what what does home mean to you? When you say the word home, what you know? It's family, really. Mm. I suppose um, home, yeah. It's um, it's a connection to a place. I mean, you know, the air here is good, the food here is amazing compared to places in London, and also you're around with your family, and and you've got that um. My ability to go and see my well before lockdown to go and see my family was um really quite important to me. Uh, now I've been I'm angry because I've been denied that. My old man's 84 and he's self isolating and um that's really hard for him, mm. really hard for him. Yeah. But yeah, home is where the heart is, isn't that what they say? Yeah, yeah, and, um, definitely. Or where the swallows are <laughs> for your twitching. House Martins, we have Brent Geese, we've got Igrets, we've got um yeah, all, we've got all sorts here. Do you find yeah, it quite inspiring being around all that nature for your yeah, creativity? Yeah, I'm locked down. I wrote 28 songs and I've wow. demoed about 12 um, and, and it's gone on and on. I just, when, you know, when you've nothing else to do and you're facing Armageddon, you might as well just pick up the guitar and see what comes out. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other choice is to sit there weeping into your hands, you know. <laughs> or making sourdough, as apparently everyone else did. Not everyone me. else made sourdough. No, I'm really <laughs> curious because, you know, all this pizza that's been put away, um, <laughs> how many people have put on how many pounds. So, um, um, Pete, can, can I ask you about the, the new music then? Um, what, what, what can we expect from it? I, I mean, the, the new album, the, the working title is called Hope, Hope For You. And I was really conscious of, about two or three of the songs um, have that as their main theme and um, 
it could be that I'm writing that to myself, but Al and I get together. We, I mean, Meet Me at Midnight's about um, probably, a, it's like a COVID wish. It's like, a, you know, we'd love to meet, but we can't. And so it's um, a midnight being sort of like the, the, the uh, a penultimate hour in the day, you know, between, between one day and another. So it's that kind of, I don't know, it's some sort of significance to it. But the idea of meeting, meeting someone in real life, that's what the song's about. And, and that's, that's been denied us and that's, but it's, it's got hope for that, if you know what I mean, rather than it's never gonna happen. So it's interesting and it's hard to write positive songs when you're 50 and you're grumpy, right? But <laughs> I, found, I found a way of doing this, which, which sort of seems to, seems to work. I mean, I used to believe in love. We've got a song called, I used to believe in love, but now I believe in you. That really works for us because, you know, when I was younger, I was, I was very naive. I used to think love was something, but then I grew up and I saw it's very, very different. And, I can put that into a song now and we can have that dream spin on it. It's uplifting vibe as well. So um, again, it's going to entertain people, but you know, if you look beneath the, I don't know, beneath the carpet, there's a couple of bugs under there, a couple of, <laughs> couple of nice thoughts. And um, can, can I ask Al, um, Al, have you been persuaded to move to Donegal as well? Or do you, uh, are you a convert? He's from Edinburgh originally. Oh, but he's, yeah. he's living in Birmingham. No, Staffordshire. I don't live in the countryside. So he lives over You've both enjoyed city life and moved to the countryside. What do you, what do you miss about city life? I like to, I'm still a bit of a, I would say, party animal at my age, but I am, um, <laughs> I still like to go out and run, party, run clubs and stuff. So I like that side of thing, but. Apart from that, really, and that's, mm. that's work. What about Brian Cox? I meant to ask you about him. Um... Brian's, Brian's great. He's in good form. Uh, I went to his 50th was it last summer or the summer before. I can't remember. We, we do periodi- periodically text each other and sort of chime in to see how we're going. And um, we, when we sat in the Turcoat, um, we, and I'm sitting reading a, a, a book, a biography on Napoleon, you know, like a little man syndrome or something, but um, the biography on Napoleon. And then my backing singer was reading Hello Magazine, so she'd come off with the Hello Magazine. And Brian had this tomb, it was about day thick, about three inches thick. It come off, and I swear to God, if you held it that way, it would read the same as if you held it that way, right? <laughs> it, just, it looked like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs to me. And he'd come up and he spent his time on that coach explaining very complicated ideas to very, very stupid people. So I take credit for the fact that he's ended up doing that for a living. Yes, very- exactly. <laughs> That's the only credit I'll take. Everything else is his own. Well, thank you so much. It's been no fabulous talking to you. <laughs> no problem. We've got to get, what are we going to get? Vocals done now? Backing vocals? We're working on a song called Many Hands. This oh. song we're working on is called Many Hands. And it's not, not many jazz hands. I was going to say, can we have some jazz hands? I love a jazz hand. Love jazz hands? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's about all people that help you along the way to where you get to, if you know what I mean? Because we're only here by the grace, the good grace of others. And that's what the song's about. And uh, well, I look forward to some really good party tunes because we all need to party once this is over. Let's Absolutely. Make... Coming your way soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's been lovely to meet you both. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks a million. Yeah, thank you Take so care. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Pete and Al from D-Ring. We really enjoyed that. Raving to bird watching. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> Now, all series, we've been asking you to send us your own city quitting dilemmas to discuss. Our last in the series is Amy, and her dilemma is one that I think a lot of people can relate to at the minute. Please leave your message after the tone. 
I'm struggling to adapt to working from home, especially as I started a new job in the first lockdown. It's been so hard to get to know my colleagues and I sometimes lack motivation to get on with stuff. Any tips on how I can get into the work from home mindset? We know a thing or two about working from home, don't we, Jean Anne? Certainly do. Um, it's the life of a freelancer. Now everyone <laughs> understands <laughs> that it's not always as easy as you think it is. I mean, there's this lovely thing that you don't have the commute, which is brilliant, and you can be at home and potter around in lunch hours and do do bits and bobs. But actually, the reality is, if you're not used to it, it can be quite a big change can't it um my first big tip is to keep to a routine and that sounds really boring because you're working from home and you can be a bit more flexible but I find I have to start at the same time have a lunch break at the same time I then always have a a break because I have to go and pick my son up from school but I find if I don't have that routine Mm -hmm. I feel really like and I I don't know about you Jeannie because I know you've got small kids too but that walk to and from school is also great a bit of fresh air that's what I'd always say to people because if you're in an office you tend to leave your desk and go out and get some fresh air at some point and I think we can forget to do that sometimes when we're at home definitely um my walk depending on how much time I have is a a lovely leisurely walk to collect my daughter or it's just a whiz there in the car um with all the traffic thrown in so a walk if you can do it is fantastic um Jane you mentioned um the fresh air thing Mm. What about kind of having a cup of tea in your backyard yeah. garden if the sun's out, that kind of thing? Definitely. When we had the lovely weather for the first lockdown, I definitely had a sneaky little sunbathe <laughs> at lunchtime for half an hour with maybe a book. And I really found myself being more productive because my my slump time is the afternoon. I really struggle in the afternoon. So I really have to sort of work to my rhythms and that's another great thing I mean it does depend on what job you do but if you've got a really nice boss maybe work when you're most productive you know for me it's mornings and I I was working till midnight last night because I find myself really productive late at night weirdly Mm. um not possible for all jobs but there might be a way you can do that and um I think talk to your boss as well Amy about how you're feeling it can feel really hard to bring up issues at any time in work let alone when you've just started and you might not want to bother them because you feel like oh well it's COVID it's a very stressful time for for you know for people for bosses and and staff alike but it's part of their job to make sure that you're happy and settling in okay so um talk it over with them and maybe try and come up with some sort of a proper plan as well whether it's weekly calls just to check in with how you're doing or some sort of bodying up with other new employees uh, who might be going through the same things or maybe some mentoring online um, or over the phone with some more experienced members of staff um, just to break the ice and it's it is really hard though I feel for you Um, you know I've been working solo from home for quite a while um uh, it's it's a bit better at the minute because my husband's working from home you know since since March um but I really I, I know that you can really miss the small talk mm, and the definitely. chats in the kitchen about what happened on tv the night yes. before or who yes. got chucked out of Love Island <laughs> the, the really remote uh, sorry the really mundane stuff like yeah. what you're going to have for your lunch all of it no <laughs> totally you have breaked up your your kind of day yeah but, um, but yeah on, on a work side as well you know it's if you've just started somewhere you might need to be asking questions about how you should be doing something and don't be afraid to still ask those questions mm, um definitely you know it, because that it's 
yeah, as I said, it's it's your boss's job to make sure you're you're yeah. doing okay as well. My one of my friends manages a team remotely at the moment, and what I love that she does is they have a weekly meeting. And after the meeting finishes, she insists that they all stay around for 10, 15, 20 minutes. They all get their cups of teas and they do exactly that. They talk about who's left strictly, you know, who they're going to vote for in the jungle, what they're going to have for their lunch. And she she realises that's really important for mental health. So if you have a lovely manager like her, hopefully your manager will do the same. The other thing I think is a bit uh, of a difference working from home is the boundaries get blurred. Don't you think, Jean-Anne? It's home, work it's all one thing so I think if you can have a dedicated workspace and an office that's brilliant but we can't all do that I certainly don't um I have a little desk in the corner of the room and I make sure every night I put all my work stuff away there I push my chair under the table and I just leave it behind and then then it's home time because otherwise I think you can just work all hours of every day it's difficult isn't it I was speaking to a friend recently who um she said that her desk is at the very bottom of her bed. You know, she works in her bedroom and she said, you know, she wakes up in the morning. She sees it there. She goes to bed at night. She sees it at the end of their be- her bed. So she's, you know, kind of can't escape work. Yeah. But yeah, if you have any wee corner or nook that you can dedicate. And as Jane said, kind of, you know, ritualistically close it down at the end yeah. of your working day, <laughs> like hide it from view or whatever. Um, that That's brilliant. But yeah, just... Don't don't lose hope, Amy. I'm sure you'll get you'll get there with the job, and hopefully this current really weird time won't be forever. And at some point you will get to meet your colleagues <laughs> in person, and who knows, even go for a drink with them. Um, wouldn't that be lovely? About four I'd or five years a... time. <laughs> I know. I'd love. That's what I miss about working in the same office with you, Jean Anne, is that we can't go for our little um, lunchtime shopping sessions or a nice little drink no. after work. Oh. No. Well, my bank balance is certainly looking healthier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I miss you. I miss you too, Jane. Um, thank you, Amy, for that dilemma. And thanks for joining us on All Change, please. We hope you've enjoyed this series as much as we have. Please do have a listen to all our back catalogue from series one. And if you have time, please review, subscribe and share this podcast if you enjoyed it. And please do keep in touch. You'll find us on Twitter at All Change Pod. Our DMs are open and we'll post any updates on there. So thank you so much for listening. We've really loved it and we hope you have too. And bye for now. Bye.